Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 38. And it says, And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Amen. Good morning, guys. It is good to be here. It is good to gather together as a church, celebrate all that God is doing in our midst. If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have hard back, paperback Bibles available for you on the way into the worship space. You can find it on your phone, but you're going to need a Bible this morning. We're going to cover some ground in Luke chapter 21. If you're joining us for the first time, not only do we want to extend you a special welcome just to bring you up to speed, we are at the tail end of a series, a study that we've been in for some time now through the gospel of Luke. And as we uh, follow along with Jesus in this story, in the Gospel of Luke, we are learning how to follow Jesus with our life. The Gospel of Luke is just simply the good news of the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as we follow along with that story, our goal has been from day one that we would learn to follow Jesus with our life, that we would be inspired, encouraged, and instructed how we might leave here and follow him. So that's where we're going to go this morning, and we're going we're gonna to survey the entire scene of Luke chapter 21. I know that seems like a lot of ground to cover. We're going to focus in on just the final few verses, but in order to understand the, the, uh, the significance and the application of the few verses we're going to look at at the end of this chapter, we really need to survey the whole scene because this is a, a principle that is true anytime we open God's Word. If we just go to God's Word, if we just grab a couple verses and try to apply them, pluck them out of context, we can get in trouble pretty quickly. I heard of a guy one time who had been far from God, and he dusted off his old Bible, and he thought, I want to start following God. He didn't really familiarize himself with God's Word. He didn't know where to start, so he said, I'm just going to open God's Word. I'm going to put my finger on the page, and whatever that says to do, I'm going to do it. So nonetheless, he opened his Bible. He turned to Matthew chapter 27. He put his finger on verse 5, and the Scripture said he went and hung himself. And he's like, this can't be right. I, I, I haven't been in church, but this doesn't seem right. So he flipped over to Luke chapter 10, and he put his finger on verse 37. It says, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. At this point, the guy's getting pretty uncomfortable. And so he flips, says, I'm going to go one more to the gospel of John. John chapter 13 points his finger to verse 27. It says, Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And you can see, like, you can get in a lot of trouble just misquoting God's word. You can pluck verses out of context, and they can give you some pretty funky application. And so today, we're going to focus in on the final few verses. I promise that if we take those home and apply them, they will change our life. But as we gather together and sit together under God's word, our goal is always that you would be well-equipped to go from here to study God's word for yourself so that you can hear what God has to say, not just in the corporate gathering on Sunday, 
but in your daily time with Jesus, your daily prayer time, so that you can follow him with your life. That's what we're going to try to accomplish this morning. So we try to accomplish every week. In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not, but everything we do as part of our corporate worship gatherings on Sundays is designed to help you learn how to experience Jesus for yourself. Do you realize that? Like the liturgical flow of our worship service, it's designed that if you take the structure of what we do here on a Sunday morning as we gather together and do it in your daily life, you will experience God. If you're wondering, like, how can I experience God for myself? Where do I start? Just do every day what we do when we gather on Sunday. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing we do on Sunday? We worship. When you wake up in the morning, just make much of God. Let the first thought to your mind, the first words out of your mouth, just be thanking God for who he is and what he's accomplished on your behalf, that he gave you another day. Just start your day with worship. And I promise that as you worship, as you think of God, as you make much of God, you're going to realize how far, even on your best day, how far short you fall. And that leads to naturally to confession. And we have time of corporate confession and private confession. We worship and we confess. And then remind yourself of the goodness and the grace of God that was demonstrated by his body nailed to a cross for us. That when you step out of bed that day, that you don't have to accomplish anything to gain God's favor, but you find rest in him as we confess uh, and confess and take communion. And then you study God's word. You sit with him in a time of prayer and study, listening to what he has to say, listening to the things that he wants to say, and then go from your time of study and, le- and lead a life, a lead a day of worship. If you will just follow that simple liturgical flow every day, I promise you will experience God make a difference in your life. So that anymore said up, we're in Luke chapter 21. Lindsay read for us from the end of the chapter. That's where we're going to land the plane today. But as I said, we're going to survey the entirety of the chapter for the setting and the context so we can understand what God is trying to say to his church. Luke chapter 21, verse 1, it says this. It says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in more than she had, put in all that she had to live on. Okay, so we could spend an entire sermon on these four verses, and perhaps someday we will, but, but this gives us the setting for the story that's about to take place. It gives us the setting for the teaching that's going to follow the story that's about to take place. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. We spent 10 chapters following Jesus on this journey to Jerusalem. Now he has arrived, and more specifically, we zoom in. He's in the temple, and he's watching people come and go, putting their offerings, their financial offerings, into the offering boxes. And he sees people with tremendous wealth come and give generously so all can see. And he sees a widow probably sheepishly come up and put in some pocket change, what would be pocket change for most people. And Jesus simply says, she has put in more. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the application is very simple. The world looks often at what people give. Jesus looks at what people keep. This woman gave sacrificially and generously to the work that was going on in the temple. I mean, we could stop and preach a whole sermon, as I said, on this. But the truth is, as a church, even a relatively small church, you guys give generously. We say all the time that this, this ministry, this movement, this desire to be a church plant that plants churches is uh, powered by the Holy Spirit, but is fueled by the generosity of those who call Eastside home. And so we're so thankful for your sacrificial giving. Uh, if you haven't started giving to the work that God is doing here and you call Eastside home, this is an incredible way to experience being part of the mission. But that's another sermon for another day. What we see here is the setting. Jesus is in the temple. He's in the temple courts and he's watching the people put in their offerings. It's important to know that Jesus is in the temple because it goes on. Verse 5 says, And while some of them, while some were speaking of the temple, 
how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so this is why we had to start at the very beginning. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. Uh, In a few short days, he's going to be nailed to a cross, but he's got some incredible things left to teach the people. He's teaching, he's watching, he's making observations. He sees this widow put her offering in. He, he makes an observation about how we give and we give generously to support the work of God. And then some, who I think are the disciples, they start looking around at the temple and they state, start making the observation that everybody saw that the temple where Jesus was standing was a really impressive building. In size and stature and significance, it was, it was one of the, certainly one of the wonders of the world at that time. And the disciples, they just start saying, like, this is a really nice, temple. It's a really nice building. It's really impressive. The stones were monstrous, and it was decorated. It was ornate. It was the place where God's people came to offer sacrifices to worship God in the Old Testament. But I think, if if we dig in a little bit, if we had to assume the disciples were doing more than just admiring the architecture, I think they were scoping out the temple for selfish reasons. And what I mean is this. If we were to look back at the last chapter, Jesus has just been met by three different groups of religious leaders. And three different times, they brought questions, challenges to Jesus to try to trap him in his words, to try to trick him to say something that would discredit him by being, from being the Messiah. And all three times when those religious leaders came to Jesus and, and posed these trick questions, Jesus answered them masterfully. And the disciples saw this. Like, they were close to Jesus. They heard what he said. They were watching the interaction with the religious leaders. And they had to think when Jesus just defeated, like when he just outsmarted the religious leaders whose home was in the temple, their work was in the temple, that Jesus would be moving into the temple. Like they were there to celebrate a king, a messiah, a priest, a prophet, and they thought Jesus was going to set up shop in the temple. And so maybe they weren't just scoping out the size and the significance of the temple, but they were looking around for their future office space thinking this is the place they're going to set up shop. The disciples likely thought that Jesus would be moving into the temple, but instead Jesus said to them, to their surprise, a day is coming when all of these stones that you see, this impressive building, not one stone is going to be left on another. And instead of moving into the temple, Jesus' work on the cross would make the temple process obsolete. His work on the cross to restore a relationship with God would make the temple process pointless because no longer would people have to go to the place of the temple to offer sacrifices in the presence of God. God's presence would be with his people. And no longer would they have to trust in the sacrifices offered annually at the, at the temple. They could trust in the sacrifice of Jesus himself for their salvation. And so Jesus says, the day's going to come when this thing, in fact, in very short order, this thing that you're standing here, standing in all of now is going to be obsolete. But even more than that, Jesus was predicting and prophesying a day would come when the physical temple would literally be destroyed. And the disciples, like, they can't fathom that. Because the temple had been under construction since before Jesus was born. A hundred years it had been being worked on because of the size and the stature and the significance of this building uh, in its place in Jerusalem and its significance for the people of Israel. The disciples who were following Jesus, they could not fathom a day where the temple would be destroyed. And so they asked Jesus a series of questions. It goes on, it says, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And I, and I love this because it shows us that it's okay to ask Jesus questions. Those closest to Jesus were constantly bringing questions to Jesus. The question we have to ask is, what do we do with our questions? 
When we have questions about God and who Jesus is and the way things are going in the world around us and even in our own life and wondering where God is, what do we do with those questions? Do we let them distract and discourage us or do we bring them to Jesus to seek the truth? Do we bring our questions to Jesus trusting that he will give us what we need to know? And when we bring our questions to Jesus, God gives us, Jesus gives us what we we need to know. He may not give us the answer we want. He may not give us all the information we think we need, but Jesus always gives us the things we need to know. That's what happens here as the story continues. Jesus, for the next several verses, gives the disciples a very clear explanation of what was about to take place. Follow along with me as I read these next several verses. It says in verse 8, it says, And he said, See you are not led. So they ask, when is this going to be? What's it going to look like? When's it going to take place? And Jesus said to them in verse 8, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Many people are going to come claiming to be the Messiah. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famine and pestilences, and there will be tears and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you are to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by your parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I love how he ends that section there in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What Jesus says to the disciples, he says, things are about to go sideways and you are going to get caught in the struggle. People are going to persecute you and punish you. Your friends and your families are going to betray you just because you love Jesus. But when things look like they're going wrong in the middle, he says, there's going to be an opportunity to witness that you know God and God knows you. And then he gets down to verse 19. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now that sounds super spiritual. Right? Like if we were just to pick out a verse, that verse sounds super spiritual, and everything in the scripture ultimately is spiritual. But I think the definition is relatively simple for this verse. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus has just told them everything that's about to take place, that their world will be at war, their temple will be destroyed, Jerusalem, the capital city will fall, everything that's about to take place. And then what he's saying is, if you will heed my warning, if you will listen to my words, then you will gain life. Then your life will be spared. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, but when you see Jerusalem in a very practical way, very practical way, he says, this is what it's going to look like when Jerusalem falls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that the desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter the city, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, the people of Jerusalem. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, now I know this is a lot, and if this is your first time in church, most of the Bible is not nearly this confusing. Some of it is, but this is one of those passages in Scripture that is incredibly confusing, but it's not there by accident. What Jesus is doing 
as he's telling the disciples, his friends and his followers who spent the last nearly three years following him from place to place, listening to him teach, thinking that they, he was about to be uh, crowned king, made the, in charge of the temple, and they look at this earthly picture of success that they had formulated in their mind. Jesus says, all of this that you see in very short order, it is going to be destroyed. And, and they're blown away. They can't wrap their mind around, when, Lord, when's this going to be? And he tells them, like, you're going to be dragged into it. Things are about to go sideways. You'll be pulled into the struggle. The temple is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be laid waste. But if you listen to me, if you listen to me, then you will find life. If you'll do what I say, you will find life. If you hear my word and follow my instruction, you'll find life. If you endure with me. And here's the thing. When we look back at this text that, was, uh, that Jesus prophesied. In short order, in the year 70 AD, sure enough, the Roman Empire came in and they laid waste to the city of Jerusalem. Secular historians tell us that it was a bloodbath, that the people, that the Roman Empire um, circled the city of Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and uh, Josephus and other historians tell us that more than one million people were massacred as the city of Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. It was surrounded when the time was right, they laid siege to it. But secular historians tell us that when the siege was laid on Jerusalem, that Christians weren't there. I found this fascinating. So as history reveals, uh, I'm going to read this. This is secular historians tell us the stunning fact that believers obeyed the warnings. They fled Jerusalem to a town called Pella and thus saved themselves. A scholar named Eusebius and others wrote, The whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by divine revelation given to men of approved piety, there uh, before the war removed from the city and dwelt in a certain town beyond the Jordan. Uh, Epiphanes also attested to the Christian escape, according to Bible scholars. The latter wrote, It's very remarkable that not a single Christian perished uh, in the persecution of Jerusalem. There were many... That uh, there were many there when uh, Cestius Gallus in, invested the city and, had persever and persevered in the siege. He would soon have rendered himself master of it. But when he unexpectedly and unaccountably raised the siege, the Christians took that opportunity to escape. As Vespasian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled in other places beyond the Jordan. And so they mar marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country. Not one of them perished. Now, we don't know for sure that zero Christians were killed. But what we see is, a few years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Christians heeded the word of Jesus, and, they, and their life was spared because of it. When Jesus said to them, by your endurance, if you'll stick close to me and my word, if you'll listen to what I say, then you will be saved. When the siege uh, was laid on Jerusalem, Christians weren't there. The rest of the world, when the army approached, fled to the city, which was conventional wisdom, Right? You see an army coming, the, you'd f uh, flee within the fortified walls of the city near you. So they fled from the country, from the hills, into Jerusalem. They locked themselves in. But Christians fled from the city. And when Rome circled the city and starved the people nearly to death, and then when the time was right, moved in to uh, wipe the city out, the Christians were not there. Which got me thinking. Like, how do we lead people? This is a question that's been on my mind as I think about our church. We, we exist to lead others to exchange the common for the holy. How do we lead people to want what God wants? Because conventional wisdom, 
would have told the Christians when they saw the most powerful army in the history of the world coming to the city to flee within the city, but they remembered the words that God said, that Jesus said, and they took Jesus at his word. So instead of fleeing to the city like the rest of the world, they fled from the city. They exchanged what was common, what was expected for what God had said, what was holy, and they fled and their life was spared, which got me thinking about all areas of life, all areas of life, like how much pain would God spare us from if we would just simply listen to what he said? I mean, this is true in all, all kinds of ways, but like, if you will just endure with God, if you'll just listen to what he says, how much suffering will we, will we be spared? How much life will we be fine? Maybe it's relationally. Like, if you, if you long for a relationship and you want to take matters into your own hands, like, how much turmoil and heartache will be spared if you just trust God to provide a person for you? Longing for uh, financial success. And we started with the, the widow putting her few cents into the offering box in the temple. Like, instead of taking shortcuts, just trusting, just endure with God, just do what he says day in and day out. Don't give way to follow the course of the world, but trust him. Like, how much life would we find if we just trusted Jesus? How do we lead lives and lead people to want what God wants? Jesus said to the people, he said, if you're by your endurance, you will gain your lives. History showed that those words were true. The Christians who trusted in Jesus and answered his call and followed his word ultimately spared their lives. Spiritually, that is true of all of us today. But it does beg a bigger question. Like, why do we spend so much time, why have we just spent the last several minutes talking about the fall of Jerusalem, an event that took place, a historical event that took place in the year 70 A.D.? Here we are nearly 2,000 years later. What is the relevance for us? Certainly we can learn from their example. We can stand in all of the prophecy and the promises of Jesus. But like most prophecies in Scripture, this prophecy, the fall of Jerusalem, found its full and greater fulfillment, in the, will find its full and greater fulfillment in the coming of Christ. The fall of Jerusalem was God's judgment against the city that rejected Jesus Christ. In many ways, it's foreshadowing a greater fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. We know that uh, the, the fall of Jerusalem, history tells us, was an all-out brutal assault on the city. As I said, 1.1 million people murdered as the, the Romans invaded the city. 90,000 led away in captivity. Many starved to death. It was uh, Josephus and other secular historians tell us it was a, a terrible scene. 70 AD was symbolic in many ways of the second coming of Christ because... When God comes back, when Jesus comes back, God's judgment, his wrath against all mankind for our sin is going to be poured out. And there will, like in Jerusalem, there will be no escape. Every, everyone who's opposed to God will be destroyed, will experience the judgment of God. But just like the second coming, those who heed the words of Christ and put their trust in him will escape and find their lives. Right? Jesus connects the fall of Jerusalem to his second coming. Hear what he says in verse 25. He says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is to come on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So Jesus is now no longer talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He's connecting this event to the second coming of Christ. He said, you're going to look around with apocalyptic language. He points to uh, what we all see and know, that nature is not as it should be. 
All you have to do is turn on the, the news and you see uh, reports of earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes, droughts and disaster. And something within us, even if we don't have language for it, knows that this is not the way the world was created to be. The Apostle Paul would write to the church in Rome answering that question we ask. He said, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jesus says, and then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus says to the, the, the disciples, to the, those who are following him, who are putting their trust in him, that when you see these things take place, your redemption is drawing near. That you don't have to cower with fear like the rest of the world, but when you put your trust in Jesus, you know that he's about to set right everything that has been uh, gone astray because of the fallout of sin. And then Jesus told him a parable. Verse 29, he says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is near. And Jesus just gave very basic instruction. He says, when you see that the trees begin to bloom, you know that summer is near. Like, you know that 2,000 years later, right? You don't have to be a gardener, have a green thumb to know that when things start to bloom, summer is near. I have anything but a green thumb. A year and a half ago, we re-landscaped our whole front yard, um, invested a lot of money and time and plants and trees and things like that. I was looking as we went in yesterday, we have one tree left. The rest of it's just brown. I was like, I have no green thumb. But on that one tree was a bloom. And I was like, this is perfect. This is what we're talking about. When the, the trees begin to bloom, uh, summer is near. Jesus says, just as you look at the trees and you know when they go through the process, they bloom, that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so Jesus is connected this event that's going to take place in their lifetime to a greater fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. And then we land the plane with practical application in verse 34 through 36. He says, but watch yourselves. So all of this is going to take place. Struggle is going to break out, war, persecution, punishment of Christians that God would see his people through. But watch yourselves, he says. Would you think about the second coming of Christ, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life and a day come upon you suddenly like a trap. What's so cool about this text, what is so abundantly demonstrable of God's grace is he gives us warning that we're not left to wonder. When we have those questions about God and what's going to come, he gives us enough to know how to faithfully follow him. He says, but watch yourselves. Be alert. Be on guard. Don't get distracted so you don't get caught off guard. He says, don't get, let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life. And he kind of gives us three different areas. Dissipation, it's like this idea of, of starting to drink and that buzzed feeling when you start to get a little bit of a headache and uh, get giddy. I don't drink, but I've been to enough football games to know that this is when people decide when they start drinking like this, they, they decide that they don't really care about what people think of them because they're there to have a good time right? Like, and it's one thing, like if you're a UCF student, I go to enough UCF football games, UCF students can look like a fool when they start drinking at football games. That's one thing. You get the consequences of your actions. What's kind of sad though is when you watch parents, like when you watch moms and dads start drinking and you see the kids kind of sink into their seat because like they just don't care anymore. Like this is about them and them having a good time. God says, don't let that mentality, don't let that mentality sink in. 
Like, don't embarrass your kids. That's not what he says. He said, don't let that mentality sink in where it's just about having a good time and just being wasteful with your life, wasteful with your opportunities. And then it moves on to drunkenness. That's when you're just obliterated, right? You have no idea what's going on. You're not being representative of Christ. You're not in your right mind. You could be completely caught off guard. And then he says, and don't get weighed down with the cares of life. And this is what hits home with me. Because I might not struggle as much with dissipation and drunkenness, but the cares of life can often distract me. I can start thinking about the next vacation or the next job or the next house or the next outfit, I'm whatever. Like you just start thinking about the next, the next, the next. And it's just the regular cares of life. Where are we going to do as a family? Where are we going to go? Where's the church going to go? And we lose sight of spending time with Jesus. He says, if that takes place, this day that I'm telling you is coming is going to come like a trap, a day that you know is coming. If you don't think that can take place, just think about when was the last time that Christmas caught you off guard? And like December, like when you think December rolls around, it's like, man, it's, it's Christmas again? December 25th, like, was, has it already been a year? And it's not that we didn't know it was coming. And it's not that we weren't excited about it, but it was that we just got weighed down. We got busy. We got distracted with other things, sometimes bad things, sometimes good things. But nonetheless, we got distracted and it snuck up on us. Maybe a less fun illustration is tax day, right? Same day every year, but it's nevertheless. I kid you not. I go to my accountant, who also is my dad, on tax day every year. I know it's coming, but I don't pull the stuff together until they're due, right? Because it sneaks up on you. It, it sneaks up when you get busy and you get distracted. Jesus says, but watch out. Don't get weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of life that that day may sneak up on you like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. That's just a very definitive statement by God that it is coming. Someone might say, like, I don't believe in the second coming of Christ. It's like, I don't really care if you believe in it. It is coming. Whether you believe in it, it's like, Someone says, I might not believe in a Mack truck, but if you walk out on the highway, you're going to find out it exists. It's coming, whether you realize it or not. He says, it is coming. And then he ends with this way. He says, here's how the church responds. But stay awake at all times. Obviously not literally, but stay awake. Be watchful, diligent at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake, be watchful, be diligent at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all the things that are about to take place. Here's the thing. None of us, neither you nor I, have the strength to withstand the judgment of God. The wrath of God that's going to be poured out, we cannot stand in its way. We do not have the strength. But when we pray, when we put our trust in Jesus, when we spend time with Jesus, it's no longer our strength we're standing as but his. I love the song that the worship team led us in as we started the sermon. This is how uh, the battle belongs to you. When I fight, I'll fight on my knees. That I'm stronger when I surrender to Jesus than when I stand in my own strength. He says, but stay awake at all time, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things. Here's the, 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 the good news, which may not seem like good news, is you and I are not strong enough, but Jesus is more than strong enough. In fact, he already accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own. That wrath of God that is going to be poured out on all of those who don't trust in him. One preacher described it as if you were standing uh, 100 yards away from a dam of water 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide. All of a sudden, that dam was breached and a torrential flood of water came crashing toward us. Right before it reached our feet, the ground in front of us opened and swallowed it all at the cross of Christ 
at the cross, Christ drank the full cup of the wrath of God. And when he had down the last drop, he turned the cup over and cried out, it is finished. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, but stay awake at all times, praying, trusting in Jesus, spending time with Jesus, that in him you might have the strength to escape all these things. I love the way the Apostle Paul said it in Philippians chapter 3. I'm realizing this is becoming one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because every time I read it, something new jumps out to me. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul, an accomplished religious leader who gave up everything in order to follow Jesus in the first century, wrote to a church in Philippi, a young church plant, much like you and I gathered here today. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why Luke wrote his gospel. When we started this back 17 years ago, Luke wrote his gospel so that we could know with confidence that the things about Jesus are true, historically and experientially, that we would know Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, he says, for his sake, for the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Giving up everything in this world, the desires of this world, the anxieties of life, so at the end of the day I might gain Christ and be, and this is what I love, and be found in him, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Our own righteousness falls far short. Like if we were to try to stand against the wrath of God with our good works and our righteousness, we would be run over like this dam bursting forth. But when we stand in Christ and it's his righteousness, the wrath of God was satisfied on him so that we can have life through Jesus. He finishes this text. He says that I may know him again, but be watchful, praying, spending time with Jesus, intimately trusting your Savior, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And Paul just says, reiterates what Jesus just said, that we're going to, that in this life, we are going to face suffering. But if we endure with Christ, if we will stay with Jesus, if we will put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, if we will walk with Jesus, faithfully following him as he leads us through life, when that time comes, we will stand confidently in him. That when the world passes away, we will experience his resurrection. I want to end with a quote from the theologian C.S. Lewis as a call to action. C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago, excuse me, many years ago, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what good is it? But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered in your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will for this time it will God without disguise. It will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen.
whether we realized it before or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And we don't often share urgent calls to action at each side. We don't preach hellfire and brimstone, but the truth is God is holding back his wrath, wanting the world to come to him. And we don't have to be surprised. Like we don't have to be caught off guard. We don't know, even Jesus at the time didn't know when that hour would come, when he would come back. But he says, this is how I'm gonna come. And if you want evidence, just look around. The world is frustrated by the fallout of sin. Even nature is fractured. We, we know in our soul that things are not as they should be, but God is gonna come and set things back in order. And he went to a cross to restore a relationship with his people so that when we know Jesus, when we spend time with Jesus, we experience him for ourselves and put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin, for the forgiveness of our sins, we can have confidence that our redemption is drawing near. God's wrath is gonna be poured out. The question is, is Jesus gonna stand between you and that wrath or are you gonna bear the full weight of it on your own? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. Lord, there's an inevitable reality that we face. We face the end times. God, you are going to come back as you promised. Every promise you have uh, shared throughout Scripture has been fulfilled. Your words will not pass away. And so, Father, we trust that just as you fulfilled everything faithfully in the past, you will faithfully follow through on this promise. Lord, my prayer is that as we gather here today, as we think about and celebrate the things that you have done on our behalf, that we would put our trust and our faith in you, that we would experience for ourselves the difference that we can make. Lord, whether we're trying to figure out faith for the very first time or we've been trying to follow you for quite some time, that today we would be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own, but one that is found in Jesus Christ, so that when that time comes, we will experience the resurrection, that we'll be raised to life with our Savior. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go to work in us as we sing these next two songs, that he would stir us to take the next step of faith. That he would stir us to take that next step of faith to find out more about Jesus. If all of this is true, we're happy to share what we know. What would it look like to put our faith in Jesus? To exchange the common for the holy, to say it's no longer my way, but I'm gonna to try to figure out and follow God's way to take that next step of faith, to, to step in, to contribute to your church, that we might make you known to those around us, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, so that when that day comes, we will go confidently with as many people as we were able to bring with us, that we might be part of your church. Father, we thank you that as the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords, you did not leave us to wonder, but you told us what it'll be like. And Father, for those of us who are already in you, Lord, that we would look forward with great anticipation to realizing the fullness of the promises of God once and for all. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.